We're reading from Romans chapter 9, and we're going to pick a couple of verses from last week just to get the context. So we'll be starting at chapter 9, verses, verse 22, and going through chapter 10, verse 3. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that In that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Dear Father, as we continue this morning to look into what you have revealed to us about your absolute sovereignty over the affairs of men and over the hearts of men, we ask again that you would humble us and give us eyes to see that which we need to know to walk with you in your righteousness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Good morning. It was nice to have some rain, wasn't it? When I was a young believer, uh, I was in college at Texas A&M. No whoops. There you go. I heard a whoop. I was uh, very involved in uh, Campus Crusade for Christ organization there, and we were engaged in evangelism and discipleship among the student body. Uh, at one point, early in my experience with that group, uh, someone in the group decided to, that we should turn our attention to the student athletes, and we should really focus heavily on trying to evangelize those guys and girls. And the logic behind it was that 
that they had such high profile among the student body that if we could, you know, if one of them could get saved, that God could mightily use that person because so many people would pay attention to what he or she said. Well, we pursued that course of action for a while and we saw absolutely no fruit. The one thing I got from it was uh, in going into the dorms of some of the student athletes, I realized that that you could live a lot higher on the hog if you were an athlete than you could if you were a really good student. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. Finally, one of the one of the guys, one of the uh, upperclassmen in our group, pointed out the utter foolishness of that whole course of action, based on the example that we had been given by Jesus Christ, who, of course, focused his attention on those not whom the culture held in high esteem, but on those who had been cast aside by the culture, who were despised by the culture. If there's one thing that's very clear from the things we've been seeing Paul say in Romans 9 thus far, it's that God has no regard for the agenda or the priorities of men. And he's going to continue to drive that very reality home further this morning in the passage we'll be looking at. God has no regard for the distinctions that we make between people. And as he presented earlier, Paul's going to show us that God has no regard whatsoever for what men call righteousness. Bob reminded me yesterday morning of Psalm 115, verse 3. It's a wonderful, very succinct verse. It says, Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Everything that we're going to see today will reinforce that great reality that God does as he pleases. And that our assignment as his children is to submit ourselves to that which he pleases and to be joyful in doing so. Uh, We're here for his agenda, not ours. When we see that uh, paradigm as not only uh, true but perfect, That's when we become genuinely useful to God, and that's when we become truly joyful. We're looking this morning at Romans 9, verse 24 through 10, verse 3. And in this passage, Paul continues to reveal things about God's agenda that some in his audience most assuredly did not want to hear. But they're things that we as God's people need to hear and to embrace. We're going to see... Uh, the, the theme, and again, I changed the title since the bulletin. That's becoming a habit. Uh, the theme, as I see it, is God's righteous remnant. In verses 24 to 26, we'll see that God's sovereign calling that Paul has been talking about in chapter 9 extends to both Jews and Gentiles. And then we'll see that God declares about his remnant, those whom he has called to himself, several things. He, he narrows down this idea of the remnant for us and tells us uh, things about uh, what who, those who make up that remnant. It is some, not all. It is few, not many. And it is by God's doing and not by man's. And then in chapter 9, verse 30 through 10, 3, Paul will declare again, as he has previously, that the righteousness of God's people, of God's remnant, is God's own righteousness. Now, if you were a Jew and had heard only what Paul had said thus far in chapter 9 regarding God's sovereign choice 
as it was played out in the lives of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob, you might easily conclude that God's choosing applied only to Jews because that's who Paul had been talking about. Uh, even when Paul talked about the fact that God's choosing granted mercy to some but wrath to others, hardening to others, the examples that he gave to us of people who were on the rejected side of that paradigm were Esau and Pharaoh, both Gentiles. So again, unless you had heard what Paul had said earlier in this book, you might conclude that the vessels of mercy he spoke of in chapter 20, in verse 23 of chapter 9 were all Jews. And that the vessels of wrath were all Gentiles. But in verse 24, Paul spells it out for us. He explains that, he declares that those whom God declared, uh, chose beforehand and prepared beforehand to be vessels of mercy include not only Jews, but Gentiles. Now verse 24, uh, would not have been welcome to some of the Jews in Paul's audience. They like to think of themselves as the exclusive heirs of the covenant promises of God. We've talked about this some before. They were okay with the notion that Gentiles could, uh, at, at the level of belief and practice, convert to following the law of Moses. They could be circumcised and they could, you know, be sanctified by the keeping of the law. But the Gentile proselytes or converts were not treated by the Jews as equals. They were seen as a lesser class of, of uh, God-fearers. If you do a word study in the Old Testament on the word alien or foreigner, whichever one is used in your translation, you're going to find a whole lot of instances in which God rebukes Israel for their neglect and even their outright mistreatment of those who had come into their midst from the surrounding Gentile nations. Uh, if you want a great object lesson on the Jews' attitude toward the Gentiles, just read the book of Jonah. Jonah's a, he's a very good example of that mindset. During Jesus' earthly ministry, many of you are aware that if Jesus really wanted to get the Pharisees and the Sadducees riled up, the, the religious leaders, all he had to do was talk about God's purposes toward the Gentiles, right? Luke chapter 4 is a great example of this. Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in his hometown, Nazareth. And he was saying some pretty amazing things. And the, the, Jewish, the, the Jewish folks in the crowd were actually not having a problem with what he said. In fact, they were... They were very much on track with what he was saying. Even when he quoted from Isaiah 61 about God's plan to deliver and to bring healing to his people, and even when Jesus said, this day, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your midst. In other words, he was saying, I'm the fulfillment. It says that the Jews were speaking well of him, and they were wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. But as soon as Jesus then pointed out to them that God had sent Elijah to Sidon to minister to and to be cared for by a Gentile woman, and then he mentioned that Elisha, Elijah's successor, had been sent 
to heal a Syrian leper, also a Gentile. The very next thing that is said in Luke 4 is that all in the synagogue were filled with rage. And it says they rose up and they cast him out of the city and they led him up to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. It's a fairly radical change of attitude in the midst of one discourse on the part of Jesus Christ. The Jews clearly did not like the idea of sharing their status as the people of God with the Gentiles. Now this attitude toward the Gentiles on the part of the Jewish leadership flew in the face of God's assignment that he had directly given to Israel in the Old Testament. The assignment that Israel was called to be God's ambassadors to bring the revelation of the one true God to all the nations and peoples of the world. In Exodus chapter 19, just before God delivered to Israel the Ten Commandments, he told them that they were his people. They were the people for his possession. And then he also said to them that they were to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Well, that priestly function meant that Israel was called to be the mediators of the knowledge of God to all the surrounding peoples. In the great covenant with Abraham that God declared in Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In fact, the name Abraham means father of a multitude. And God said to Abraham, you'll be the father of a multitude of nations, not just one big nation but a multitude of nations. In spite of this very clear missionary assignment that God had given to Israel, the reality was that the Jews were never very keen on the idea of sharing their special position as the people of God with lowly Gentiles whom they considered woefully unworthy of that position. Even within the Christian community of Paul's day, the influence of the Judaizers was very powerful. Now, the Judaizers believed that when a person came to faith in Jesus Christ, if that person was a Gentile, it was absolutely necessary for him to be circumcised and to begin to put into practice the requirements of the law of Moses in order to be considered a legitimate Christian. And they also emphasized that the keeping of the law of Moses was a critical part of being a Christian and acting as a Christian. Now, this was a, this was a huge issue in the early church. Even Peter and Barnabas at one point were drawn into the Judaizers' error at some level. If you read Galatians chapter 2, you'll see Paul talk about that. A very great portion of the words that you find in Paul's epistles is devoted to dealing with this particular problem with forcefully shooting down this unbiblical notion that the Jews had a special status in the eyes of God within the church of Jesus Christ. And of course, the notion that keeping the law of Moses was still central in the life of God's people. So in Romans 9.24, Paul makes this declaration that God called people to be vessels of mercy children of promise and true sons of God, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And in that statement, he makes no distinction between the two. 
And this is not the first time in the book of Romans that Paul has said such a thing, right? At the very beginning of the of this epistle, he said that his calling from God as an apostle was to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for Christ's namesake. And then he said, among whom you, you Roman believers, believers also are the called of God. And there again, he didn't make a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. He said, the believers in Rome are called the called of Jesus Christ. Later in the first chapter, verse 16, very famous verse, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek, the Gentile. And when he said to the Jew first, he didn't mean that the Jews had a higher priority or status in the eyes of God. He, mean, he meant that the gospel was given first to, to the Jews. That goes all the way back to the many citations or declarations of the new covenant in the Old Testament, right? In Deuteronomy 30, uh, God talked about what he was going to do in the hearts of his people. To, to draw them to himself. He was going to be the one who would grant uh, deliverance. Uh, there, there are many such citations that the, that the Jews received first. They got the message of redemption. They got the declaration of substitutionary atonement. Just read Isaiah 53. They had the whole gospel, in effect, in the Old Testament long before it was, it began to be presented through any other people, to any other people. So the Jews had the good news, but that didn't mean they were supposed to hoard it or keep it unto themselves, right? They were called to, they were given it first so that they would spread it to all the nations. In Romans 9 verses 25 and 26, Paul fortifies what he's just said about the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan of redemption, and he does so by going to the prophet Hosea. He says, as he says, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you were not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And it's very interesting that Paul should go to that particular passage to make this point. Because if you go back and read Hosea, you'll see that when Hosea, when, when God references those who were not my people and are now my people, he's talking about Jews. See, in Hosea, God set his people aside for a time because of their spiritual adultery, because of their gross idolatry. And he, in effect, divorced them. That was the, the picture that he presented. But after a time of judgment, he declared that he was going to bring them back and he was going to restore them. And he he used the image of betrothal. And he, in Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, he said, And I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know Yahweh. And then verse 23 of that same chapter, Hosea 2, he says, And I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, You are my people. And they will say, Thou art my God. So Paul takes a promise that originally applied to Israel, and he applies it to Gentiles also. 
If you put Romans 9.24 together with verses 25 and 26, there's no other conclusion you can come to. Those who were formerly not the people of God and are now made the people of God include both Jews and Gentiles. Now, the reason Paul has the liberty to, to take an Old Testament passage and to apply it differently is because, of course, these are not merely Paul's words. These are the words of God through the Apostle Paul. God gets to tell us what his words meant before and what they mean in a different context. The very fact that the Jews knew that these words originally applied to Israelites assured that Paul would have the undivided attention of the Jews in his audience when he said this. Maybe not their happy attention, but their undivided attention. Everything that Paul had already said in chapter 9 focused on the sovereignty of God demonstrated in his decree from before the foundations of the world to choose some as vessels of mercy and to choose some as vessels of wrath. Paul's saying nothing different here. It's all about sovereignty. It is on the basis of God's sovereign choice alone that His mercy is extended not to Jews only, but also to Gentiles. And apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we would all be in that category that God calls not my people. We would all be condemned. It's only by God's mercy, by his sovereign choice, that any man comes to be counted among the people of God, among those whom Paul points out are called the sons of the living God. Okay, so in verses 25 to 26, Paul kind of drives home this idea that God's sovereign calling includes both Jews and Gentiles, and that's big news for some in his audience. And in verses 27 to 29, uh, he narrows things down some. And he uh, tells us some important things about this remnant that he's talking about. And first I want to point out that in chapter 9, verse 24, backing up just a bit, there's a preposition that Paul used, from among. He said, the vessels of mercy, even us, whom God called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And that Wording from among means just what it sounds like. It means some, not all. Only some Jews are called, not all, and only some Gentiles. In these verses, Paul removes any doubt about what he's saying on that score, verses 27 to 29. He quotes from two passages in Isaiah, and he's crystal clear from these passages that in spite of the expectation of many Jews, not all Israelites are called to be vessels of honor, vessels of mercy. Throughout the Old Testament, when God spoke through his prophets about the remnant, it's a very common word in the Old Testament, he's talking about a minority of his people, a portion of his people. When the prophets talked about the remnant, they said that God would gather the people of Israel and Judah whom he had scattered among the nations and sent into exile, that he would bring them back into the land of promise in the last days. He would restore their fortunes. He would cause his Messiah to rule over them and over all the nations. The passage that Paul first quotes here in Romans 9, 27 and 28 is from Isaiah chapter 10. 
verses 22 and 23. And here's that passage. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. And then God declares judgment. It says a destruction is determined overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Immediately after citing those verses from Isaiah, Paul then quotes, he backs up a little bit, and he quotes from Isaiah 1, verse 9. And here's that passage. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. So it's not, it's, it's some, not many, and it's a few, not a lot. Paul's choice of Old Testament passages here is, again, I think, uh, brilliantly intentional. I can't think of any better verse than this one to point out that those who will be saved from among the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be few, not many, just as those who will be saved from among the Gentiles will be few. In Matthew 7.14, Jesus said, The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So the redeemed of God will be only a fraction of all mankind. That should be quite clear from what he said. Now, does that mean that God's grace and mercy are sort of inefficient or only marginally effective if they only result in a small portion of man being saved? May it never be. God's sovereignty has no exceptions and no limits. He does as he pleases. The greatness of God's promise and the measure of his faithfulness in keeping that promise is not about head count. Have you ever noticed that numbers aren't generally a measure of success or effectiveness as God measures such things? Gideon started with 32,000 men when God called him to go up against the Midianites. Judges chapters 5 and 6. And the text says that the Midianites were like locusts for number. They were innumerable. So what did God do with those 32,000? He made, Midian, he made the Gideon whittle them down to 300, right? And then he sent them into battle, and God granted them a decisive victory, and not one of those 300 men was lost. In another event, one of the most severe judgments of God against the Israelites occurred when David took a census, right? 2 Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21. David got all excited about knowing the exact number of soldiers that were available to him. As if that had ever been the measure of Israel's advantage over her enemies. God killed 70,000 of those fighting men because of David's arrogance. Because David forgot who it was that made Israel great. David forgot about the absolute sovereignty of God. God is not impressed by our head counts. We make a big deal sometimes out of getting large numbers of people to pray about stuff. But God says in James 5.16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. 
Now, there's great value in having plenty of people praying. But that value is that it makes a lot of Christians very deliberately dependent upon God, not that it makes God more prone to act in a certain way. God is sovereign over everything. We are sovereign over absolutely nothing. It is really, really important for us to keep that in mind. Otherwise, we get into the ridiculous mode of thinking that we can somehow manipulate God. Now, permit me a little stretch here. You ever wonder why so many Christians measure the effectiveness of the local church by the number of people in the local church? Is usefulness of a church in the hands of God a function of the number of people in it, or is it a function of the submission of the people in it to God's agenda? When the, perse- when the persecution comes that is certainly coming, and when it comes in earnest in this country, and when the number of people in many churches plummets like a rock, our prayer should not be that, ours, that our number will be among the biggest. It should be that those who remain in our midst are willing to lay down their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the furtherance of his gospel. Now, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as a godly church that's big. <laughs> I'm just saying headcount is not how God measures the godliness and the usefulness of his church. So it shouldn't be how we measure godliness. There's plenty that we can do better as a local body. But those things have to do with greater submission to God's revealed agenda, and they have nothing to do with numbers or dollars or any of the things on which men depend. Now, before we move to uh, the last section of today's passage, there's one more thing that I want to make sure we don't miss. In verse 29, Romans 9, 29, Paul is, again, he's quoting Isaiah 1, verse 9. Look at that verse. He says, just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of armies, this is the Net Bible translation, if the Lord of armies had not left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. Who is it that acted to give Israel a remnant? It's God. Isaiah never said that there that there became a remnant among the Israelites because there was this little group of people over here who were more faithful than the others. He said if God had not taken action to preserve a few, all would have been utterly destroyed, just as all deserved. If it were not for God's merciful work to create a remnant for his own possession, guys, we would all be like Sodom and Gomorrah, except that the fire and brimstone wouldn't end. This is no small point, and it's also not a new point here. Over and over in the great restoration and salvation passages in the Old Testament, who is it that gets credit for bringing God's people around? It's God. Again, I mentioned Deuteronomy 30. After God declared in advance that Israel would experience the full measure of the curses because of their violation of the law of Moses, God says, I will circumcise your heart and I will bring you back and you will, you will be my people and I will be your God. In Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, two great new covenant passages in the Old Testament, who is it that says, 
He will cause the people's hearts to be turned. It's God. He says, I will take your heart of flesh, uh, your heart of stone, and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. Paul's point here in citing Isaiah 1-9 is perfectly in keeping with everything he's been saying previously in Romans 9 about the sovereignty of God. It is God's choosing, God's calling, it is God's creation of a righteous remnant to be his people that alone brings about the existence of that remnant. It is all God's doing and it is in no respect man's doing. Paul goes on in chapter 9, verse 30 to 10, 3, to kind of shift his attention to the whole matter of righteousness. He's had a whole lot to say already about righteousness earlier in the book. He starts in chapter 9, verse 30, with a question that we've seen many times before. He says, what shall we say then? And with that question, he ties all that that he has just been saying about God's sovereignty in creating a redeemed remnant, back to what he said in earlier chapters about the righteousness of God, which comes to men only through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, and that's a person, not a thing. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And once again, Paul is certainly not walking on eggshells to uh, protect the sensibilities of the Jews in his audience. For the Jewish readers, uh, these were ironic and painful words. Because he's saying that the Gentiles obtained righteousness without even bothering to pursue it. Who was it throughout history that had worked so hard to lay hold of righteousness? Well, Paul would readily agree it was the Jews. But he says the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness at all, yet they laid hold of, they attained righteousness while the Jews who worked so hard to get it never laid hold of it. And Paul makes a very interesting use of the word uh, law in this passage. He says Israel pursued a law of righteousness, and then he says they did not arrive at that law. When he talked about the Gentiles just before that, he didn't use the word law at all. He said they lay hold of, they, they laid hold of righteousness without even pursuing it. I think he's playing with the word law to make a, an important point, and that is that the Jews' pursuit of righteousness was not on God's terms. It was a law-based righteousness. But the true righteousness that comes to men from God, his righteousness, has nothing to do with man's efforts at law-keeping. The Gentiles laid hold of righteousness without ever putting any effort into it. (laughs) And the righteousness that they received is the righteousness which is by faith. Unfortunately, Paul had already made it infinitely clear, unfortunately for the Jews in his audience who were still bent on law-keeping, he'd made it clear that there is no such thing in the eyes of God as a law-based righteousness. 
The law simply proves us to be lost. It closes every mouth and makes every man accountable to God so that we will come to Christ. So the righteousness the Jews pursued so diligently was actually nothing but a mirage, a human contrivance that had no reality in the eyes of God at all. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 10, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for the Israelites, is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. If you look at verse 3 there, most translations in that first part of verse 3 say something like, for not knowing about God's righteousness. And the Greek word that's used there can mean not having knowledge or understanding of, but it can also mean neglecting or ignoring. It's pretty easy to figure out which of those two definitions applies here because later in the same verse he says they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. This was a willful rejection of the righteousness that was presented to them from God, and it was a replacement of what he had provided. Paul's point is that Israel, ignoring God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, did not subject themselves to the true righteousness that belonged to him. Here's a question. When Aaron and the Israelites took all their gold that they had taken out of Egypt and they made that golden calf, what did they call the calf? In Exodus chapter 32, verses 4 and 5, right after the calf was made, Aaron looked at it and he said, Tomorrow we will, we will have a feast to Yahweh. That's the name that God gave to himself when Moses met with him and God manifested himself in the, in the bush burning with unquenchable fire on Mount Sinai. Yahweh, I am. See, Israel didn't set out to abandon the God who had delivered them via the mighty miracles that were performed in Egypt. They didn't set out to abandon the God who had parted the sea to to protect them from the Egyptian army. They just reimagined and they tweaked the God who had revealed himself to them so that he would fit their conception better of what God should be. They just couldn't bring themselves to humbly submit to the revelation God had given them of himself. The invisible God, entirely other than anything that he had created, and who therefore could not be represented by anything that he had created. The God who had spoken to them from heaven so that they could not bear to hear his voice. And they said, Moses, let him talk to you and then you can talk to us. He's too great. He's too transcendent. He's too scary. Israel wanted God to be a lot more manageable than that. They wanted a God that they could manipulate the way the Egyptians manipulated their gods, so they reimagined Yahweh and they worshipped that God that they had recreated in their own image. And so Israel, the recipients of the covenant promises, the recipients of the knowledge and revelation of God, did what Paul talked about in Romans 1. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks 
but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. In a different, much more subtly attractive way, I think sometimes we do much the same. Bear with me for a minute. God tells us that the only righteousness that passes muster with him is his righteousness. He says the way we get his righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ. He tells us as clearly and as forcefully as words permit that righteousness in his eyes has absolutely nothing to do with our works, with our rule-keeping, with our checklists. It's all about his work that he accomplished through his Son at the cross. Now, every believer in Jesus Christ certainly buys into that fundamental understanding of how a man becomes righteous or doesn't become righteous. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a believer in Christ. But there is a nagging longing in us for a righteousness that we can manage better than that. We have this struggle with the tendency to tweak what God's told us about the nature and source of true righteousness so that we can pin down the whole matter of righteousness better than his approach allows us to, right? (laughs) We like manageable sets of rules. So we turn the commands in the New Testament into a new set of rules to replace the old. And we end up doing much what the Jews did. We create a bunch of new ones because the ones that we find don't cover every situation that we run into in human experience. So we need some more. We call our list of rules righteousness, and then we impose that list on other people and we declare them unrighteous when they don't keep or maybe even share our list. And God looks at all that and he says, that's not my righteousness. That's yours. And I'm not impressed. In Paul's day, the legalism of the Judaizers presented a grievous threat to the unity and the health of the early church. And Paul made a full court press in his epistles to oppose that threat in every way that he could. Now, I've heard some say that legalism is not a significant problem at CBC. Beloved, legalism has been an issue in the church since day one, and it will be until the day that Jesus puts our sin away from us. Our attraction to crummy imitations of real righteousness is one of the most useful tools that Satan has in his arsenal to divide and to cripple believers. There's a reason that so much is said about this problem in the New Testament. I could, you know, give you my version of some real world examples, but I think that would be seriously unconstructive. (laughs) So instead, I'll prayerfully ask you to prayerfully ask God to seek your heart and to show you if there are ways that you may be feeding this divisive problem. Again, it all comes down to the sovereignty of God. It is so vitally important that we reckon with what God is, talk- with what God is talking about through Paul here. How is it that men become vessels of mercy rather than vessels of wrath? It is all by God's doing. It is by His sovereign choice. How is it that men become righteous in the eyes of God? The same way. By God's doing. 
not by men's. We are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24. What part of that has anything to do with us? None of it. The central theme of Paul's epistle to the Romans is the righteousness of God given to men, imputed to men judicially and imparted to men practically. And the one and only reason that there is even such a thing as a man who bears the righteousness of God is because God has made it so. You've heard me say before that knowing what you deserve clarifies a lot. Uh, Well, I believe the most liberating point of that clarification is knowing that your version of righteousness is worth absolutely nothing to God. I'll end with a passage to which God continues to draw my attention on a regular basis. Paul gives us here a powerfully illuminating declaration. He says, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. That no man should boast before God. And then he says this, But by his doing... You were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our Father, may our boasting, our worth, and our calling be Christ alone. It's in his name that we ask it. Amen.